Hi, I'm Michael Musi, and this is The Schema. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Sandy Chung about the current state of pediatric value-based care and how we can work together as a society to address some of the most important challenges facing our next generation of adults. Dr. Chung, thanks for joining us today. Before we dive in, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do with Children's National. Sure, I'd love to. And thank you so much for having me. So I'm Dr. Sandy Chung, and I'm Medical Director of Informatics for Children's National's Pediatric Health Network, which is their pediatric clinically integrated network. Um, also CEO of Trusted Doctors, which is a large pediatric medical group in Northern Virginia and Maryland of about 130 clinicians in 25 locations. So just a few things on your plate. Just a few. Fantastic. One of the things that I love about pediatric value-based care is that in, in a lot of adult medicine models, we focus on how to optimize service utilization. So you think about Medicare where it's all about managing post-acute utilization, making sure patients can get the treatment they need at home or transition to home more quickly. But I feel like there's a little bit more focus on coordination of care and wellness in pediatric care. Tell me a little bit about how you see the differences in pediatric value-based care evolving relative to commercial or even senior populations? Yeah, that's a great question. And really in pediatrics, the focus is quite different. For pediatricians, our job is really surrounding prevention and promotion, really trying to keep disease from happening in the first place. And so when in an adult model, we may be more focused on treating chronic disease. In pediatrics, we're actually focused on preventing the disease in the first place. And so thinking about your traditional value-based program, shared savings models, it doesn't quite work as well because first of all, the spend on children is really small. Right. And so we don't cost a lot. Our, our, our children are generally healthy. And so there are a few who have chronic illness, certainly, and some who have severe disease. However, working on things like reducing hospitalization or trying to avoid hospitalization in the first place doesn't actually work as well in pediatrics because rarely is a child in the hospital who doesn't need to be. Right. Right. And so, so thinking about value-based care in pediatrics, we really need to change the focus more to things like prevention, uh, perhaps quality of care, uh, thinking about, you know, are we doing the evidence-based standards that are necessary to keep children healthy? For those kids who have chronic disease, certainly thinking about how do we manage those conditions more efficiently, um, but still providing high quality of care. In pediatrics, often we're doing our job when we're doing more. So for kids, for example, who have uh, anxiety or depression, um, seeing them more often actually would be the focus, not less often. Um, for kids who need vaccines and who need well visits, making sure they're coming in for every single visit is critical. And so one thing we saw over the pandemic where there was very little illness, uh, we actually saw very few kids come in with illness. And so the only thing they were coming in for were checkups. Yeah. And so when you're in a shared savings model and the only thing that's happening is checkups, then the only way to save money is to do fewer checkups, which is not the goal of anyone. And so thinking about when we look at value-based care for pediatrics, we really need to define a new model where it's not focused on shared savings and instead focused on prevention and making sure kids are coming in. Yeah, it, it, it's almost the real 
promise of value-based care, which is aligning to outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I've had a lot of conversations with a number of leaders in the pediatric care space that the pandemic was just horrible for children. And that a lot of the existing models for value-based reimbursement don't have many resources. There aren't many nationally accepted standards for what pediatric quality means. There are the vaccine measures, the two-year-old and the 13-year-old vaccine combo measures, certainly annual well-child visits, and the series for uh, early childhood visits. But when you start to think about how do you start to coordinate the factors that are driving some of the pediatric health crises in the country around mental health, anxiety, and depression, how do we get to a place where there's advocacy and standardization of how we can evaluate the efficacy of care across different pediatric care settings? Yeah, that, that's a goal of every pediatrician out there. You know, I think you're right. The measures that we have currently nationally are not ones that necessarily reflect quality of care in that, yes, it does for checkups and yes, it does for vaccines, but there's so much more to a child and their child's health than those two things. Uh, it really is important that as uh, pediatricians and clinically integrated networks, there are more of them now. Uh, pediatrics is several years behind adult medicine in forming clinically integrated networks. But as we're doing that and we're collecting data about the care of children, we can start to think about, well, what, what does reflect quality? Now, for the American Academy of Pediatrics, we have evidence-based standards that every pediatrician should do in order to take the best care of children. Uh, that's in something called Bright Futures. Um, so that is a guideline. That's already a template. They have codes already assigned to them so that it would show up in a claims feed, for example. So, so really, you know, there, there are ways to do this. Uh, I think as far as making it actually happen, uh, we would rely on partnerships with vendors like Arcadia so that we can do this work. We have the data. It's really putting it in a format so that we can actually develop measures and standards behind that. Are payers part of the development of those standards or how are they injecting those in the contracts that they negotiate with pediatric practices or clinically integrated networks? Um, I, I would say that probably the payers that are most interested currently are state Medicaid programs sure. because there are so many children um, in these programs. Over half of the children in this country are on Medicaid. So wow. if you think about the number of children that is, it's an enormous number of children that unfortunately means that half of our children are in poverty, uh, which is what that reflects, correct, right? So I think when we look at Medicaid, though, unfortunately, we have about 56 different varieties of Medicaid right. because every state has its own program and every territory has its own program. So thinking about this from a national perspective, how do we unify and standardize what's happening across the Medicaid programs as far as quality, as far as what measures they're using? So as far as I know, really it's the Medicaid programs that are the most interested um, or most creative perhaps in looking at new measures. Most of the commercial payers are tied to what's happening at the federal level. So um, measures that are dictated by, you know, um, NCQA sure. or HEDIS, you know. So, so unfortunately, the commercial payers are held to a standard that has to be done at a national level. I do think there's some advocacy work happening in that space. 
but we do need the measures first, and then the next step would be to get them implemented and operationalized. The, the other piece that I think is a challenge in pediatrics is what's the definition of value? Mm -hmm. You know, I, often when we think about what we're doing for kids, we know that in early childhood, so when a child is even under three years of age, we learn so much in the field of epigenetics and so forth, where we know if we intervene early and we prevent things like adverse childhood events, um, if we mitigate trauma impacts, all of those things, that we can actually change a child's physiology. We can change their genetics so that they may not get chronic disease later when they become adults. We have data that shows that if we intervene early, we can prevent things like cancer. We can prevent wow. things like diabetes. We could prevent things like obesity. And if you think about that, if you were able to prevent obesity, cancer, diabetes, all of those things, the trajectory of the healthcare costs goes way down Absolutely. in the long run. But that return on investment isn't in a 12-month period, which is where a lot of payers are operating. Yeah. Um, that payoff is going to be in decades. Right. Yeah. And so designing a system that recognizes that is the challenge. It's interesting. I was having a conversation with a member of Merck's research team. You know, they, they produced the Gardasil vaccine and they were looking to do a longitudinal study on the impacts of cancer prevention for patients who've received Gardasil. Well, as you know, I think the clinical protocol is that uh, the first dose is recommended at nine years of age. And you know, development of cervical cancer is decades down the line. And so creating a longitudinal study of patients who receive the vaccine, and then you can look at a cohort based of a similar age group who developed cancer who didn't or didn't receive the vaccine, it's a really tough challenge. And that's exactly what you're that's describing here on a much right? broader scale. Exactly. What one thought is that early child care actually has done a nice job of studying why having quality child care early in one's life actually can project how much they can contribute as an adult. So, you know, as far as, you know, school readiness, high school graduation, when they become really contributors to society as an adult. And they've been able to show that there is a return. Uh, the early intervention in healthcare is very similar to that. Uh, if we're able to show that by helping a child um, sleep enough, eat enough, be able to read, you know, all of these things, have the right nutrition, uh, get exercise, stay healthy, uh, that they can become functioning adults in society. And, but getting that data, as you point out, is really the challenge. I want to go back to a, a stat you, you cited earlier around the number of children in poverty, which is just staggering. I, I didn't realize that you joined that fact with that comment of getting high quality early childhood education. And those are in many ways incongruent. I live in Massachusetts, which has some of the highest costs of childcare in the country. And I have a number of friends who are, are not in poverty where the cost of childcare is both influencing their decision on how to advance their careers, where to live, if they're going to have more children. And these are folks who are generally well-to-do. How do we start to attack this confluence of social determinants and benefit coordination in order to make sure that in addition to getting preventive health care, that we're, we're really managing children's wellness as a country? That's right. So it really takes an investment, right? It takes an investment in the public good. And so, you know, children represent about 26% of our population but they're 100% of the future adults. And so making that investment now and early will pay off for our nation's future. So it's really important that we think about children differently than we think about adults. 
And so again, going back to value-based care, the current models where you're trying to reduce care, really, reduce unnecessary care, right? Um, or improve um, quality in chronic disease, those are excellent initiatives for adults, but it doesn't work in pediatrics at all. Um, in pediatrics, we really should be doing more. So as you mentioned with childcare, you know, making that affordable, well, it really becomes a public question, right? And, and are we willing to make that investment early in order to make sure that in the long run our, that we're doing okay? So I think changing that narrative, thinking about investment again for our future is, is important. I think that's really fascinating. A couple of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, there were some articles published around the innovative Medicaid models that are being implemented in, I believe, Massachusetts and Oregon that guarantee coverage for children up to six years of age. Is that the type of investment that we need to be seeing more of across the country? Yeah, that's exactly the right step in the right direction for that. If we think about um, child health and access to care, right? If a child is in Medicaid, not in Medicaid, in Medicaid, not in Medicaid, that changes who they can see. Right. Right. So if you've established a relationship with a medical home, a pediatrician who may be seeing your child, and then suddenly you're not on Medicaid, and that pediatrician doesn't take whatever you ended up on, right? Then you can no longer see that person. Then you end up back on Medicaid, you know, or vice versa. You know, if you weren't on Medicaid, you're seeing someone and then you're on Medicaid and that provider doesn't take Medicaid, right? So, so that really inconsistency of care is quite, quite impactful as far as trying to make sure this child, you know, gets all the, the resources that they need. And so by having a child staying on the same insurance, whatever that is, but staying on that same insurance for those formative years, you know, under age five, that really can have the best long-term impact um, in the long run. It also, in Medicaid or in other programs, in, if in a, in a commercial plan, for example, if you know you're going to have a, a member for five to six years, then the actuarial part of this becomes much more stable. And then we can start to think about, can we look at capitation models or things like that so that we can be creative? For example, in my practice over the pandemic, we actually bought a, an RV, we bought a van, and patients weren't coming to us because of fear of COVID in the beginning and lockdown and all of that. So we bought an RV and we put a nurse practitioner, it's a physician sometimes, a nurse, and we drove to people's homes so that their babies could get vaccinated. Because a two-month-old wasn't going, we, we thought the pandemic would just last a few months back then, right? right. But a two-month-old can't wait a few months to get their two-month-old shots, right? right? Because there's so many to get and we wanna make sure they're getting at the time that they need them. Um, also, interventions need to be done early. They can't wait months. It's so different than an adult, right? So you really need to be able to do services and deliver them early. But things like that, you know, having innovative models so that we can think about how do we reach people where they are. Uh, if there are children who are, uh, you know, in double income homes where both parents are working in fast food restaurants or maybe even an office situation, it doesn't matter where they're working, but they're working. Having practices only open during nine to five, Monday through Friday, doesn't work very well. And so how do we reach families? How do we get those kids? Um, if they're in daycares, if they're in school, you know, are there ways to reach them there, but do it in a way that's coordinated, you know, so we're not getting fragmented care. There's a lot that could be done, but the current payment model doesn't support it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think this is exacerbated in children's health, but it's the same story across the rest sure. of the healthcare system, you know. 
your or my PCPs have offices that are open nine to five and we work nine to five, you know, so, but <laughs> we right. have more control right. of our schedule than a child yes. who has to coordinate not only their school schedule, yes. but mom or dad's schedule or the caregiver exactly. schedule. Exactly, that's right. I, I want to switch gears. There's a really unfortunate trend of growth of mental health mm -hmm. issues in pediatric communities. There was a, a study in 2018 that the leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 24 was suicide. How Sorry. how has this become such a large issue and yeah. what are the drivers? Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation we're in. Uh, we all know through the pandemic, we had various situations like lockdowns or not being in school, virtual schooling, all of those things that really led to isolation. And so for kids, especially teenagers, your peer support is critical to your development, in fact. And so by not having kids around other children, essentially what we did was create a universe where they couldn't learn from others, they couldn't interact with others, they couldn't get positive reinforcement. And then sometimes the interaction, all the interaction they had was digital. And, and I think that also leads to concerns. Um, there were also economic issues, you know, the families were stressed yeah. and children reflect what their parents are experiencing. So when adults in the household are stressed, the children themselves become stressed. Similar, if they are anxious, the children can become anxious. If the parents are depressed, the children can become depressed. So again, children are receiving so much, you know, and they're at the age where they haven't developed to the point where they have coping mechanisms to do that. So what we end up with is then this crisis of mental health amongst our youth. We've done surveys in, in, for example, in Virginia where I am, and we had one in three boys and one in five girls thinking about killing themselves uh, in the past 12 months. You know, it was a, a, just a tremendous number of children who have thought about this. Um, some have gone so far as to get a plan. Put that in place with the lack of workforce to help these children. What we have is a situation where primary care, so pediatricians, uh, schools, are left to help families, but we weren't necessarily trained to do so. I had, a, this was actually before the pandemic, I had a 14-year-old young man, he had bipolar disease, and his child psychiatrist had retired, and there, is a, there are not very many child psychiatrists, right. there's a complete shortage in this country. And so he called, their family called us to try to get refills of his medications. And he was on five different, very complicated medicines. They were ones that pediatricians don't prescribe typically. Um, and also our state Medicaid wouldn't have paid for them if we prescribed it because a child psychiatrist had to prescribe them. So, so we got him an appointment with a child psychiatrist about a month later. But unfortunately, during that four-week period, he ran out of his medicines. And when he ran out of his medicines, he got into a fight in, in the parking lot near my office. And unfortunately, he had a gun. And, and during that fight, he actually shot and killed someone. So that 14-year-old went to jail, and that man lost his life. And could that have been prevented potentially, potentially? And so, but what we had was a healthcare system that wasn't designed for this. You know, we, we didn't have enough child psychiatrists. We didn't have primary care trained. We didn't have Medicaid paying for medicines that child desperately needed. Sure. Um, so, so we really need a redesign. You know, there's a lot that needs to be done. It, it feels like the, the problems we talk about every day in the, in the overall US healthcare system are just exacerbated for children's health. You know, we've got a mental health crisis across the country yes, and there's a shortage of mental health care providers. And there's been some great innovation. You know, you have a bunch of yeah. online telemedicine uh, 
behavioral health applications companies, which is really good because it's improving access. But it seems like all of these problems are more acute and more dramatic in children. And maybe it's because you understand that children don't have the coping mechanisms and you see that if the situation you just spoke of was a 45-year-old patient, you'd say, well, you know, there were, there were different coping mechanisms, there's something else at play, but it feels so much more traumatic for children and the families. It, it, it feels like we need a better preventive model around how we not only enable the healthcare workforce to identify and address these challenges, but we also need more resources and tools for care providers, for families, for schools to access. Is there is there ongoing work around that? Very much so. So after that happened to me in my practice, I actually worked to start a mental health access program in our state. And what that program is, is actually training primary care. How do you manage conditions like anxiety, depression, ADHD? When we went through training, we weren't taught to do that work. So we need to learn how. But then also we need to be able to reach out to a child psychiatrist. We're not psychiatrists. So if we start doing this work, we need to be able to reach someone. So we set up a statewide phone number so that any primary care provider seeing kids in our state could pick up the phone and speak to a child psychiatrist within 30 minutes to get help on how to take care of a child right in front of them. That's great. Um, and then care navigation resources to help family find care. We, we did that, and, and then several other states have programs like this now. Um, AAP has advocated so that we have funding for more of these programs all across the country. So part of it is you know having the, the program or the concept, then finding funding, then doing the advocacy, but that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of change that has to happen. And, and it requires that a change maker. That, right, well, it, certainly. And there are lots of people doing great work, but I think to do it from an, a systemic perspective, you know, to really think about how we change things. You, you mentioned, you know, families and caregivers and how do they learn? How do you build, not resilience, I mean, there is building resilience, but how do you teach a child um, to be able to cope with adverse circumstances and, and do that in a way that can be positive. But that does start with helping the adults first, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of the work that we do in pediatrics is family-based. Mm -hmm. You can't just treat the child without also treating the caregivers. And so value-based care in pediatrics, again, needs to take that into account. You know, we, we can't do it in isolation. We did a lot of work during the pandemic with our pediatric customers on outreach uh, around vaccines specifically. Yes, sure. And almost all of the messaging, it, obviously we weren't texting eight-year-olds, we were texting their parents, <laughs> but almost all the messaging was about reassuring the parent. It's, it's important that your child get vaccinated for X, Y, and Z. You can come to our practice because we're not seeing patients who have complaints of COVID symptoms in this location. This is a, you know, a, a wellness center only or a preventive center right. only. And we have you know, sick visits in a different clinic. And it was all about trying to drive parent and family yeah. comfort with bringing their children to the physician because they wanted to protect their kids. And they didn't want to bring them out into yeah. the world when we had this new disease that no one knew how to really manage. Yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about technology just a minute ago. How do you see tools like online behavioral health care and some of the digital patient solutions that are starting to gain traction in adult medicine translating to, to pediatric medicine? And do you see a, a role for that in 
extending access, expanding access, making sure that children and their families can get the care they need. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Technology and telemedicine is here to stay. There's no taking that back, um, nor should we. I, I, you know, I'm a strong supporter of telehealth. Been doing that for a long time, and and with telehealth, behavioral health fits really well in that space. Yeah. Um, and also for this generation of teenagers who who are, I, I have four teenagers, and they would much rather uh, text me than speak to me. You know, yeah. and so right, so so they're quite used to working in this space, right? And so I, I think it works really well. I think it will continue. There is a lot of work happening in the pediatric behavioral health space. There's still a shortage of workers just yeah. generally, right? The workforce shortage, I think, has not yet been solved. But the method of delivery of care through telehealth, I think, is quite reasonable for the older kids. Now, when you get down to the younger kids, though, we're talking about five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, we have certainly solved virtual schooling that telemedicine probably isn't the final solution there. Right. Um, and so we still need in-person care and in-person methods to help families. We do know that when you look at kids and their outcome, that the, actually the biggest predictor of success and resiliency in a child is the presence of a caring adult. That caring adult does maybe could be the parent, could be a caregiver, could be a teacher, could be someone, but, and it doesn't have to be the same person either. So throughout your childhood, if there's a presence of a caring adult, then that actually is one of the greatest predictors of final healthy outcome and final healthy mental health. Um, and so I think understanding that as a parent earlier yeah. You know, how important, how critical that is, um, is a message that we need to, you know, shout far and wide so that everyone understands. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting. I was really fortunate to grow up in a really supportive family. And throughout my life, even now, like having that supportive adult, even even in my late thirties, is really important. <laughs> There's days where you just need that supportive adult right. just to listen or to that's provide right. guidance. Exactly. And I think that's a really important message. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Oh, well, Sandy, this was really fantastic. Thank yeah. you for taking the time with us today and spending some time with us. The community is really lucky to have someone like you advocating for children out in the world. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It was so fun.